Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Today we are talking out of 1 John 3 and talking about the assurance that comes when we experience the love of God and experience the forgiveness of God. And so 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, and 16 through 23, we're going to read these. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Can we just say amen right there? (laughs) We've experienced the love of God. We are children of God. That is who you are. That is who you are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's skip down to verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? I want you to notice that because that is, this is a real key part of John's teaching, not only in John's gospel but also in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that there should be clear evidence of this. And he, he words this very strongly. Um, in fact, I'm just going to put a little side note. If you go back to John 5, he uses a very similar phrase that says, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another but don't accept the praise and and care about the praise that should go only to God alone. He's basically saying, I don't even know if you can call yourself a Christian. I don't even know if you can say you're a person of faith if you don't. And here it's worded in the same way. How can, how is it possible? How can we believe if we see somebody in need and don't have pity on them? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, And to love one another as he has commanded us. We are studying 1 John in our teaching series, Walking in the Light. And the first book of 1 John is written to people of faith, encouraging them to not only believe in Jesus, but to walk in that real relationship in ways that demonstrate to the world that uh, our life is consistent with our belief. That's an important thing, isn't it? And there are three signs that we've been talking about over the last few weeks that give evidence that we are truly walking in the light. We're going to know his word. We're going to obey his word. And then out of that passion that is fueled because we've received the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus, we will begin to live out our lives in ways that publicly demonstrate that that life is real. And we've, we've said it's kind of like having a flashlight. Up here, I have three different flashlights I'm going to talk about those today, but for right now, I'm just going to use this big one because it's big and powerful and it's going to blind some of you. This is like being handed the light. When we walk in the light, I don't need, I'm so sorry about that. I don't mean to like, you know, (laughs) when we're walking in the light, we are given something. Now, this may not be the entire light system to light a room, but if you know that you're walking in a dark place, I can take this light and I can walk in and I can see to get from point A to point B. There was a, there was a novelist, E.L. Doctorow, that said writing a novel was like, uh, being, it was like driving with flashlights, or not flashlights, that would be terrible, <laughs> driving with headlights. And he said, you can't, you, it's not going to show very much except for the road in front of you, but you can make the entire journey that way with the headlights, right? You can do that. I may not be able to see from here to Kansas. I, I don't have enough light for that journey, but if I drive just moment by moment and I have this flashlight in front of me, if I have that headlight in front of me, then I know I can make that entire trip as I go. Well, the life of faith is the same way. I may not know or understand or have all of the light that I need for all the decisions I need to make. I may not have perfect clarity on every step I need to take or what challenges will lay ahead, but I know that as I know Jesus, as I know the Word of God, I will have enough light for that journey. 
moment by moment, step by step, year by year, decision by decision, as that way opens up in front of me. So that passion will show. Now, I was having a conversation uh, with my kids a couple of weeks ago over lunch, and they were asking me just a casual question, who are you most like as a child? And I told them which one of my children, that'll be, remain anonymous. Um, they can say thank you uh, to me later. But, and they said, really? And because they don't even see that there's any similarity between that. Well, that's because they didn't know me at those ages. They didn't know me at 10. They didn't know me at 15. They didn't know me at 20. They didn't know me at 25. Some of you, we came to this church when I was 27 turning 28. I was just a young, young woman. How many of you knew me back in the, all right, so you guys can testify. Have you seen some growth and maturity in my life over time? <laughs> as they laugh, right? They've seen some growth and maturity over time. Thank you, my friend, my brother. We grow over time and we grow as we change and as we know the word of God and it comes alive in us. There is a tremendous amount of growth and we get the privilege as a family to celebrate those milestones. Every time there is a moment of faith and trust in God that leads us closer and closer to Jesus and more and more into the likeness of his son, we get to celebrate with one another because we know the story. We see the growth and we see that maturity. And so I wanna backtrack to just 1 John chapter two for just a moment because we see a progression of faith that we didn't touch on last week that I think is so important to this. And John writes in verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And notice why. The word of God lives in you. Does it have the power to change your life? Absolutely. I write to you because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Dear children, he speaks to those not just by age, who are children by age, but children in spiritual maturity. Some of you have recently come to faith and you're sitting in this room today and maybe we handed you your very first Bible. Some of you are sitting here today. You are children in the faith. You're learning the ways. And John says, I'm writing to you because you know the Father and you've been forgiven on account of his name. That's enough to have a starting line of faith. You are children of God. He's given you his love. He, he forgives you of your sin. You're learning to know the Father. Good job. It's like you've been handed this little tiny flashlight. Okay? You have a little flashlight. Somebody handed this little keychain to me, and I love it because if my keys are lost, if anything, you know, and it's also a clicker, very appropriate for children too, need a fidget toy. You have a flashlight. You're learning. Now, is this light going to rescue anybody? Probably not, but it can get you out of some dark situations. You're learning, all right? He says, I write to you, young men, let me tell you, this little light is pretty awesome because you can hang it in your tent when you're camping, and on a dark night, it's enough light when you're camping. This even opens up, too. Isn't that awesome? Wow. Okay. But I have this little flashlight. It'll even be a strobe light, too. Maybe. It can. <laughs> but when you're a young man in faith, a young person in faith, a young adult in faith, you are facing battles that you have to learn how to overcome. You face temptations that at a more mature stage of your life will be like, man, that was a battle of the past. Thank God I don't have to fight that battle anymore. But the battles are in real time when you were young in faith and you're learning to be mature in faith. But then as you grow in faith and as the word of God comes alive in you, guess what? You're handed a tool like this and it is powerful and I'm not gonna shine it in your eyes anymore. Um, it's a powerful tool. Guess what? This tool can actually rescue somebody. I'm going to take this. If I've got a rescue mission, I'm in a disaster situation, this is the tool I want. And I learn how to handle this. A little child, think of a little one-year-old Willow. Can you imagine her trying to carry this little flashlight? You know, She's not going to be able to do it. But as I mature, as she grows, there should be some maturity in our faith because the Lord is going to put us in situations where people need rescue. Our friends need rescue. They need somebody to shine the light. 
They need somebody to see that. And he's writing to all of these people saying, I don't care where you are on the spectrum of faith. It doesn't matter if you're a little child. You have the light and you're beginning to know the Father. And the forgiveness of sins is enough. If you're a young man in faith, you're, you're fighting battles, but you are overcoming when you plant the word of God in your heart. And as spiritually mature people, he said, I only need to tell you because you've known the one who's from the beginning. He says the same thing both times, because you know him who is from the beginning. Action is based on knowledge and experience. There's a progression there. So before we dive into chapter 3, I recognize that there are some here today who are mature in faith and others that are beginning in faith. And I want to lay just a little bit of Bible background as well as cultural background because it's really important for these next three chapters that we're studying. Um, First of all, if you are new in faith, you may be learning that this book, the Bible, is actually a book of books. There are 66 books in this Bible written over about 1,500 years of time, 40 different authors. There is no other book like it. It withstands historical criticism, literary criticism. It doesn't matter what your position of faith is at this point and your relationship with this book. There is nothing like it. And, and every, everyone would agree with that. There is no, not another book on the planet that is like this book. And it's made up of a lot of different accounts that give us a full picture. And it stands in complete unity, which is amazing when you think about the, the length of time that this book is written and the diversity of experiences and perspectives that are represented in this. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, which is roughly from the the account of creation up until about 400 years before the time of Christ. Then there's this silent period, called the intertestamental period. And then there are 27 books in the New Testament. And the very first four books of the New Testament, which cover the life of Jesus and the early years of the church, Those first four books are narratives that tell us the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We we call them the Gospels. John's Gospel is the fourth Gospel. Now, let me give you a little cultural background because, again, this is important. The first three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just means it has a common perspective. So when you read these first three Gospels, They have very similar language, similar accounts. In fact, 90% of those books is common, is in common. Similar stories retold from a different perspective. So that's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. And they're written around the 50s to 70s AD. This was a time of tremendous turmoil and change in the nation of Israel. And he's writing these words to say Jesus is the Messiah, to say hold fast to this faith. Jesus is the Messiah, here's how we know. He's also writing, each of those, each of those authors are writing so that in that time of change, they will know that not only is Jesus the Messiah, but you need to know how to live as part of the kingdom of God. So there's very strong language in that, in that regard. And to give an, readers an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, this was a nation in turmoil under Roman rule, and Jerusalem would be under siege for about, 50, for about five months until 70 AD when the temple is completely destroyed. So they needed to undergird, they were in a season where they had this window of time and opportunity to strengthen the faith before things and the foundation became very unstable. Well, where does John's gospel fit in? John's gospel is written in the 90 to 100, so much later than that time. And John is writing for different reasons. In fact, 90% of John is unique to John. It does, it's not repeated in either of those other three books. But John's gospel is unique compared with those other three, as if to say, there's more things I'd like for you to know about Jesus, so let me tell you. And he even concludes the book by saying, if I were to tell you all the things about Jesus, I don't even have enough books to write it in. There were so many things to tell you about. But the emphasis of John's writing, both in John's gospel and in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, the books that are traditionally attributed to John the Beloved, one of Jesus' disciples, are, are giving this strong basis for belief. Not just that he's the Messiah and the kingdom of God and these kind of big lofty, but a personal knowledge and a personal belief, a basis for belief in that, leading to eternal life. He writes with both the declaration as well as demonstration that Jesus is both God, fully God, and fully man. This is important. Listen to the opening scriptures of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, And the Word was God. Notice the deity. He was with God. Spirit. Deity. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light. There's that light word that we've been talking about. It figures prominently in John's writings. The life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh, there's humanity, and made his dwelling among us. This is Jesus that we're talking about. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you hear that emphasis on Jesus as the Son of God, his deity, as well as who became flesh and dwelt among us, his humanity? Why is this important? John is addressing actually quite strongly in his writings this Gnostic teaching. We talked a little bit about Gnosticism over the last few weeks. And he's addressing in a, in a very strong polemic these, these false teachers who are trying to say there is a separation between the physical matter, the material world, and the spirit world. That these things don't have to exist and you can actually choose to live in one or the other. It's a mystical knowledge that elevated above belief, that separated, and this, and this eventually developed into a, a type of teaching known as docetism. And this, this word <laughs> represented a heresy that had its roots in 1 John and in the time of 1 John, but would really expand. Docetism was heresy because it taught that Jesus was only spirit. And that he never, ever lived a physical human life. He never had a real physical existence on this earth. And it separated his deity from his humanity. And early church councils would spend a lot of time over several centuries trying to wrestle with the nature of this God-man, Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be settled until the Council of Chalcedon. Council of Chalcedon in 451, when they finally settled this theological issue that said this is one man with two natures that are not in conflict with or, or compromised by either of those two natures. This was massive. It took hundreds of years, among many other doctrinal challenges to that. But it taught that Jesus was only almost like this ghost or this, you know, this phantom appearance rather than a real person. And John addresses this head-on to, uh, to say, I, I don't want you just to know about Jesus as the Son of God, but I really want you to know that he lived a real life, that you can know him, and we've seen him. We can bear witness to that. In 1 John 1, 2, you hear very similar language to John chapter 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, notice the senses, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We've heard it. We can testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to, know, to, to us. To know the word is to know Jesus. To know the word, the Bible, to root yourself in the Bible and to, to learn to hear his voice is to know Jesus. There's no other way around it, and there's no other way that we can grow in our faith if we don't build on this firm foundation of knowing the Word who was made flesh, not just an idea of who God is, but to know the person of Jesus. And you can know him today. 1 John 1, 5 through 9. Would you read this together with me? This is the, the verses, these are the verses that we have been studying over the last weeks. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said there's a difference between if we say we have fellowship versus if we actually walk in the light and our actions match up. If we say we have no sin, he says we lie and, we, and we're deceived. We deceive ourselves. It's not just the people around you that you're, that you're deceiving. They can probably see things a little more clearly than you can at times, than I can at times. But we don't want to walk in self-deception thinking we're okay. We're walking the light. 
And the only way that we can do this, because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is to, is to believe plus receive plus become. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that forgiveness is found because he offers us a free gift. And on the basis of that belief, we have the assurance that because for God so loved the world, because he so loved us, he gave us this gift. And all we have to do is receive it, and then we become children of God. Neil Cole with the Verge Network says, when God wants to start a movement, he doesn't start with the best people. He starts with the broken. How many of you have ever felt broken? How many by show of hands? I see the nods. How many of you have ever felt like, man, I don't even know if there are parts of my life that are redeemable? All of us walk through seasons like that, but God is not looking for the best. He's not looking for the perfect. He's looking for the broken. He's looking for the one that says, Jesus, I know that I, there's nothing I could do that would ever deserve this gift, but because you said I could have it, I believe that my life can change, and it will. So now how do we walk in the assurance? Let's talk about that love that saves us. There's agape love, there's an assurance of love, and there are actions motivated by love. The Greeks understood that there were several different kinds of love. They had different words for love. We know that there were words that represented um, like passion or that initial infatuation that you might feel when you enter into a brand new relationship with somebody. There were words that represented kind of that empathy and compassion that we feel when we see somebody that's in need. There were words for love that represented friendship or kind of this mutuality that we have when we, when we find someone that we just click with, we just enjoy being with them. But then there's another word, agape, which represented something very deep. And this is the word that John uses in this passage when he says, see what great love the Father. This love is unconditional. This love is not merit-based. In fact, you could do nothing to earn this love. This love is the kind of love that, that motivated Jesus to be willing to give his life for each of us. It's a sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love, and we can only love in this way because Jesus first loved us in that way. Your kids, watch what you do, and they emulate what you do, right? That's how they learn. We only love when we receive the kind of love that allows us to experience that change. But experiencing the Father's love, this kind of love, changes everything. It changes everything. In these first three verses, I want you to see this, the things that John speaks to in these first three. Identity, confidence, belonging, hope, investment, and purity. Look at this scripture. Identity. He says, you are children of God. That is who you are. You are a child of God. Your fundamental identity changes. In fact, if you're trying to figure out who you are, you're never going to settle this issue until you find it in the love of Jesus. Your identity is rooted in Jesus, and it builds this confidence to say, and that is what we are. I don't have to doubt this. I have a full confidence because he's done this work in my life. My identity is secure in Jesus. So no matter whether I have a good day or a bad day, there's a song that says, on my best day, I'm a child of God. On my worst day, I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. And you're going to be learning how to live in that light. And sometimes you're going to get it right. And sometimes you're going to get it terribly, hopelessly wrong and feel so disappointed in yourself or in other people. But they're learning. You're a child of God. Your identity is secure. You have confidence in that. And you have a sense of belonging. Because we're children of God, we belong to the family of God. And you know that when you belong to a healthy, functional family, you can fail. There's freedom to fail. There's freedom to figure it out. There's freedom to try, to try again, 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 until you learn how to, how to live in that way. That's what a healthy family does. A healthy family doesn't keep secrets. A healthy family doesn't live in dysfunction. A healthy family says, I'm going to shine the light on this area that you need to know about, but I will love you unconditionally until you figure it out. That's what a healthy family looks like. And that's why we belong, not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense to this community. All of us have areas of growth and maturity that we're still trying to figure out, and that is okay. That is okay. Amen? That is okay. Hope and investment. What we will be versus what we shall be. We aren't there yet, and we don't even know what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
There is a continual investment that he's making in me that gives me not only hope for myself, but I look forward to his return because I know I don't have to be ashamed when he comes. And it becomes a confident hope and expectation. And he says that every one of us who have that hope in his coming and the work that he can do in us will purify ourselves. We're going to keep working it out. Isn't that beautiful? So many things that God does with us. And he says in verses 4 through 8, everyone who sins breaks the law. He's shining a light on the truth. You're breaking the law if you're sinning. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we, he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. And no one who lives in him will keep on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. In verse 7, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Remember his audience, Gnosticism, people who are being led astray by false teaching, people who are being led astray to think they're walking in light, but they're not. Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning but the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. We don't have to live in chaos in our lives anymore. We don't have to live in those areas of confinement and imprisonment and bondage anymore because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to bring the prison door keys and to unlock it and to let you out so that you can live in his freedom and in his light. We are not held captive by our sin when we confess, when we repent. You are not your own self-improvement project, right? You can't do it. None of us can do it. It relies on the grace and work of Jesus. So how do we know we're not being led astray? This is why he gives us the assurance of his love. You are loved. You are children of God. He's lavished it. He's poured it. He's given it freely, generously, his love on you. Now, how do you have an assurance that you are not being led astray. You have to know the word. Know the word. Know the word Jesus that's revealed in the word of God, the Bible. You know the word. This is how we move from just knowing about God to really having a depth and maturity in our love and in our experience. Knowledge itself was not the problem for his readers. They were already following in the ways of Jesus. They were already making that decision. So knowledge was not the problem. The problem was pride in that knowledge, a sense of spiritual pride. I know I have this mystical, spiritual, revealed, secret knowledge. That was. And every bit of that Gnostic idea was to set up self as the Savior, the human potential, the divine within. Does that sound familiar to us today? This, idea, this ideology, this false teaching is alive and well to us today. You can improve yourself if you just know enough. If you just get the right information or you talk to the right person or, or you try and you have this set of experiences, it will be a lot better. But there is no other way to do that. We cannot bypass the work of Jesus in our lives. We cannot get around the cross. We all must submit ourselves to him and say, God, what do you have to say about this? This is what I'm tempted to do, and I think I'm walking in the light, but what does your word actually say? Well, your word says, this is not walking in light, so I bow. I submit myself to the lordship, the leadership of Jesus in my everyday life. I think it's okay to do this, but here's what your word says, so I submit. I know that you know a better way. This is what it means to walk in the light. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. As a child, I accepted Jesus when I was five years old. And I know that there are some, and Dwayne talks about this all the time, how he was baptized so many times. I mean, I don't even know what it would have been like to parent that child. He was... <laughs> Knowing the stories, I mean, he, he, was, he was something else. It, was, it, would have been, it would have been quite a ride to be his parent, but thank God he was the baby of eight, so his, his parents had some experience. Um, but I, I had this deep conviction that I needed to know Jesus from a very young age. And I remember after a Sunday night service, um, I remember the room had cleared out. Everybody was out in the, they called it the vestibule, down in Texas, they were out in the vestibule, the lobby, um, talking and fellowshipping, and I was at an altar, and I was just kneeling there, and I felt that sense of conviction. Now, had I done anything really major and sinful at age five? No. I mean, I was a five-year-old. But I knew I needed Jesus. My mom came back in, and she led me to Jesus. February 25th, 1979. I wrote it down. 
many years ago. It's the only way I know it. Um, but I had that sense, and I began a life of faith at that time. But for the next decade of my life, as I was learning to live, I wrestled with this strong sense of condemnation. Like there was just something internal that said, you're not right. Like it's, it's, you're not okay. If Jesus came back today, if the rapture happened right now, there's no way you'd go to heaven because you were lost. Again, had I done things that were hopelessly lost at that stage of my life, Sure, youthful transgressions, things that, you know, a normal part of growing up, but nothing significant. But it was a deep down sense and lie of the enemy to say, you're not okay. Things are not okay. And my dad recommended to me that I would read First John. And that was where I first fell in love with this book because reading God's word began to change my life and settle that issue. Did you know over 35 times just in these five short chapters, it would take you only 15 minutes to read through the entire five chapters. It doesn't take very long. But in that amount of time of just reading and rereading and rereading these words, 35 times it says, and this is how you know, and we know, and you know, and this is how we know, and this is how we know. It gets very practical. This is how you know you're okay with God. This is how you have an assurance of faith. This is how you learn how to walk in the light. This is how you're going to know. And this settled my heart. When you have light, you have assurance. If I'm holding a flashlight in my hand in a dark place, I have assurance that what's in front of me, I'm not going to take a misstep. It builds confidence when you can shine the light on your path. Did you know that you can, in just 12 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year? So if you feel like... It's like, I don't even know if I have enough time to read. Well, if you have enough time to scroll through reels and, and stuff like that, like I do, right? If you have enough time to binge watch The Great British Baking Show, like I also do, you have 12 minutes a day to change your life and to begin a habit of faith. That's why we do Immerse every single year. It's not so you get through massive amounts of Scripture. I don't even care if you finish the reading plan. I think Dr. Kim would back me up on that. Do not get bogged down by that. What we're trying to do is establish a habit that can change your life. That's why we do it in community, because we want to talk about the things of God in community and begin to establish that reading habit. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Same language in 1 John, where he said, you will, You're young men, and you're going to be strong because... The word of God lives in you. And the psalmist says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart. I've treasured it so much that I might not sin against you. Reading the Bible has changed my life. It's established a, a firm foundation of trust and confidence and assurance not only that I'm walking in the right way, but I'm learning. I'm still learning how to walk in the right way. There's still habits and patterns and thoughts and things that come into my mind that I'm still surrendering to the Lord every single day. But it's important that we establish these foundational patterns, whether you're a child, whether you're a young adult in faith, or whether you have reached maturity. I want to show you something, and many of you have been wondering why I brought a Trader Joe's bag to church today. This, this bag holds some of the most precious things to me. And I want to show you. It's not cookie butter. It's not anything else. These are the Bibles that tell a story of my life. Parents, grandparents, spiritual parents, this is a legacy of faith in my home. I brought a, a, an envelope that just represents letters. It started with my great-grandmother, my grandmother Anna Anderson, Enid Olene Anderson. Lived in Sacramento, California. I only saw her very rarely, a handful of times. But she began to write me letters as a little child. And I, I tried to dig in the attic last night because I, I wanted to read, read from some of them. I couldn't find it. Attics are scary places. Um, but <laughs> dripping sweat. It was awful. It was hot yesterday. But my grandmother Anderson began to write me letters. She couldn't have physical proximity to me, but she had spiritual proximity. 
And she began to talk to me about how she was reading the Bible and how many times. I've just finished reading the Bible again. This is now my however manyth time she had read the Bible. She began to plant a legacy and an idea of if I want a life of faith, that's a pretty good role model. She would also send me little seeds that she had. She loved flower gardening. Um, and she would send me seeds from her flower garden that I could plant and try at home. I loved it. I have kept every single one of her letters. Her daughter... My grandmother, Olene, this is her Bible. And when I was at her home, I would spend extended periods of time at her home. There were times when I was very angry as a teenager. Um, one time in particular, my parents were going through a massive transition. They were getting ready to plant a church, and I didn't want to go. I was scared. I was angry. I was uprooted. I was beginning my seventh grade year, and I went to live with my grandparents. And I lived with them for a good portion of the summer, until God began to touch my heart in areas of forgiveness, and I left and, and moved back in with, with my mom and dad. But my grandmother, this is her Bible. It's a living Bible. It's just one of the Bibles, but this is the one I remember seeing her read the most out of. Every morning, I'd watch her at, her, at the, the bar in their kitchen on her stool reading the Word, and I didn't interrupt I just watched her read the word, 700 Club on in the background, <laughs> eating her bran flakes with half and half and a half a banana sliced up. There are paper clips in here. There's a hairpin from where she would mark her pages. It's a legacy of faith. Passed down to my parents. This is my dad's Bible. This is my mom's Bible. If you go through these Bibles, you will see they are marked up. Um, there's a McDonald's napkin. My kids will appreciate that. We call that dad's office, where he wrote 1 Corinthians 2. In our teaching, are we connecting Jesus to the principle of biblical truth, or do we get bogged down in theology that we lose track of Jesus Christ? Paul said. There are all kinds of notes in here. There are even personal things, as he realized he was going to give me his teaching Bible, that he began to personalize and say, Stephanie, that are written in the notes. My mom's Bible, same thing. This is a legacy of faith. This is what it looks like to take your Bible and to begin to plant a legacy of faith, not only for your future, but for the future of those that are following after you to write notes, faithful and be, take your, maybe some of you need to have permission. You need to know it's okay to write in your Bible. God's really okay with that. <laughs> write in your Bibles. No, she has the, the lyrics to 10,000 reasons in the front of it for that. When I was five, I wanted to know the Bible so my dad had one of those really cheap little ones that you give away to everybody is the King James Bible. It, there's nothing, no prize. I said, I love mom and dad. I wrote that in the front of my <laughs> Bible. I wrote, I love Rocky, and then I crossed it out. <laughs> if you go over, I don't know, somewhere in Proverbs, I said, I do not love. <laughs> I crossed it out and wrote a new name. It's all in there. It's all in there because I was learning how to follow Jesus. I also, did I just see the ABCs in here too? <laughs> I'm not even joking. I think I saw it with writing capital and lowercase ABCs. Learning how to do that. That graduated into this Bible, ripped up, torn up. When I was in ninth grade, God began to do a very special work in my heart toward the end of that year. And I began to take my Bible to school. And I didn't care. As soon as, the, as soon as the teacher finished teaching, my Bible was out because I just, this insatiable hunger for the Word of God began to take root in my life. And it's squiggly. There are some really random, really unusual things underlined and marked um, in here. But again, I began to get acquainted with the Word of God. I also wrote in, I don't know how many different ways, I love God in like a million different fonts, including bubble letters in the back, but I began to study God's Word, which led me to this Bible that I had up until a number of years ago. I mean, I can take out the Bible because it's not even attached anymore, because I began to develop a legacy of faith. This is what it looks like to move in maturity in your faith. And today there is a tremendous deconstruction that is happening, not only culturally, but also for our young adults and our kids. And there is no commitment to reconstruction on a firm foundation. 
It is important, parents, grandparents, spiritual parents, for the sake of the next generation, that we get this right. That we at least endeavor to build a legacy of faith so that there is a difference between a churched person and a practicing Christian. It is possible that you can come to church every single Sunday, and I hope you do. I hope you do. You need this community of faith. You need to grow. You need to surrender yourselves and your schedule to a habit of gathering together. But it is possible that you could sit in this room week after week, Sunday after Sunday, and never know what it means to actually practice your faith. It is possible that you can sit in classes, that you can do all the right things, and never know what it means for your life to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a difference between public and private life, and those need to be consistent. And I know, parents, I know you're worn out from battles, everything from phone to phone usage to making decisions about how to help them in their grades and basic commitments. But let me tell you, this is a battle worth fighting. Not every battle is worth fighting. Not every battle is worth fighting. This one is. This is a spiritual battle. And let me show you what consistency looks like. This is a picture of my parents at church. I took this picture last year as I looked across at them because this is my, this is my, my dad no longer pastors. He no longer has a public platform. But there's my mom on her iPad reading the Bible. There's my dad with his Bible open, studying and learning from the Word of God. Well, let me show you another picture. This is them at home doing the same thing. This is my dad in his office. Bible's open. I just happened to kind of look around the, look around the corner into the room and snapped a picture. This is my mom sitting at my table when she was with us. Consistency. Consistency will change that. And I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, parents, grandparents, contend for your kids this way. Not setting up battle lines on things that won't even matter five years, ten years from now. This way. Set up the battle line right here and step up to it and engage. Does that mean that there's 100% success guaranteed? No. Your children will come to a place where they have to make their own decision for Jesus. But if you train the child, if you point them in the way they are going to go, they have the best opportunity for success. If you've received the light, shine your light for others to follow. And finally, 1 John 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And then he talks about Cain and Abel. The one who, who did what was right and the other one who was jealous and didn't understand it and killed him. And he said, you know what? Do not be surprised if the world hates you. <laughs> you know, they're not going to understand. They're not going to get it. But we know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. But any, and anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. But again, he says, this is how you know that you're a child of God. Because your actions are going to start going to start reflecting that. We had a pastor, the very first church we attended and that we served on staff with when we came out of college, would end every service with one statement. He said, now go and walk like the child of God you are. We have a version of that. After we give the benediction every week, we say, now go and live for Jesus. Same sentiment. Go and walk out your faith. Don't just live it here in this kind of private area. Take it into your public life. And let the light of Christ start showing. And as a child of God, you're going to learn to go and walk like the child of God that you are. Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he continues to say, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. But if I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I could boast, but I don't love, I have nothing. There has to be a consistency between right, correct, correct doctrine and correct living. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. 
what I believe is consistent with the practices and the actions of my life. And how do we know? 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech or perfect attendance at church or how many groups I join, but with actions and in truth, a consistency of life. We say our vision statement here is becoming and making disciples of Jesus. That is really important to us, and it's intentional. We are both becoming disciples of Jesus as we learn to walk like children of God, as we are going and making disciples because others see our lives, they see our good deeds, and they glorify God and say, I want to know more. They see that consistency in our lives. But how do you know if you are becoming a disciple? How do you know that you personally are a disciple? Let me give you a couple of really quick things just from the book of 1 John. First of all, we know that your life is going to be characteristic, characterized by agape love, the sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love that you have first received, both love for God, it's unconditional, unreserved, God, anything that you ask, I surrender out of my love for you. You receive love from God. I experience the love of Christ that then overflows to other people. And we love in the way that Jesus loved us. He loved us enough to lay down his life, to say, I'll do whatever it takes because I'm not willing for them to walk around in darkness any longer. Your life will be characterized by love. There will be a purity of your life. There will be consistency between the things you say and the things that you do. And you're going to grow in that. This is not a message of condemnation to you for wherever you are. Whatever your starting line today is just where your starting line is today. But by faith and by growing in the Lord, you don't have to stay at that place any longer. You can release those, those areas. But there will be consistency. Not just church, but practicing living for Jesus, walking like the child of God you are. You're going to know it because your life is going to start matching up with the things that you're reading. If you're reading through the, Old, for the, through the New Testament and you read the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the merciful, blessed when you're persecuted, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will take it seriously. When he says, I will ask you to pray for your enemies and love those who persecute you and turn the other cheek and, and to not give up on your marriage commitments and to, to do these things, then you'll say, God, because you said it, even though I feel like doing something different, I'm going to do that, and my knee bows before you. You'll read what Paul writes to the church, to the church, throughout his letters in the New Testament, where he's talking to them about the way they live and how their lives should look and what a life looks like when it's characterized by the love of God and the forgiveness of God. There will be consistency. You'll have a hope and an expectation of Christ's return, which will purify you. I want to live right because I want to be ready when God appears. I want to see him. So you'll keep on doing what is right. You won't keep on sinning. And you will develop even some accountability in those areas, whether it's in your group or with somebody that you say, God, I just need to come clean in this area. And you confess to God and you confess to others. And that way, James says, you're healed. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Your actions and truth will, will line up. They won't just be words. You're going to be walking in the light. Nothing will be secret or hidden. Maybe some of you will take a public step of baptism because you want to invite family or friends who need to know, you know what, I'm making some changes here. I've made a decision to follow Jesus, and from here on, my life is going to look a little different, and you want to give evidence of that. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your life will be a living example, and you will keep his commands. John concludes, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. In other words, how you can have an assurance of faith. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He already knows everything. No secret. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what he pleases. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it 
by the Spirit he gave us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in your word we find life. We thank you that we find light for our path. Lord, everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in you. Lord, I pray that we would not only know your word, but we would obey your word, and then we would respond. We would respond. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who, who is wrestling with just even the basic knowledge that you love us, and maybe their hearts condemn them in an area of their life, Lord, I pray that you would speak your love, your perfect love that casts out all fear. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We know that you love us. We have full confidence that you forgive us and that you show us how we can live for you. And we thank you that you've given us that example throughout your word, through the lives of, of people whose stories are written, through the examples of, of each other and the lives we watch lived out in this family. We know that there is nothing that is too hard for you. So, Lord, I pray that if there is any area of our lives, Lord, that is, that is an area of bondage or confusion or chaos, Lord, we pray that you would come. We know that you came to destroy the work of the devil. And so, Lord, we speak life into those areas. Lord, we ask that you would begin to just unlock the doors to hearts that need to be set free in the name of Jesus. Lord, we know that your word can transform us. And so, Lord, we submit to that process and ask you to teach us, help us to learn, help us to learn to walk and to live as children of light. God, we thank you for that, that work that you've done in us. As we close today, there are two groups of people that I feel like the Lord is inviting to respond in a specific way. And the first, the first group of those that maybe have never ever made a commitment to live for Jesus, maybe you don't even know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but you're curious, or maybe you, you have known a season where you have followed him, but you're wandering in areas of your life. Let me just tell you, today is a good day for a fresh start. You don't have to walk around in darkness anymore. And if that's you, would you just make eye contact with me or raise a hand? I want to pray for you. The Lord knows who you are. I can't see very well across the room with lights and everything, but... If you're in a place where you need that breakthrough, I want to pray with and for you. There will be people down here who will also be willing to pray with you. But if that's you, Jesus, I ask that you would make yourself so real. Lord, you've already done all the work that we need. There's not one thing we can add to it. There's nothing we could subtract to it, from it, from our actions or from our lifestyle that would ever change your love for us. Because of your love, you gave your life for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to walk towards you, not away from you. Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work of healing in every broken heart. Those that said, I'm not the best person, but Lord, I feel broken inside. Lord, I pray that you would do, do a deep work of, Lord, just speaking to, at the identity level of who they are. Lord, I pray that in your love, you would draw us at your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Oh, Jesus. Lord, we receive the great love, your generous love for each of us. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you love us. Thank you, God. The second, the second group of people, if you are... A student, would you stand? I'm going to broaden that. If you're a student or in your 20s, 
to 30s. Our children, our young adults, would you stand in this room? Some of you are up here on the platform. <laughs> These are the ones who need our encouragement. They don't need your side eye, they need your support. They need your support. They are navigating extremely complex issues and decisions and challenges, and they need our support. They need to know they belong in this community, that they can get things wrong and get things right, and they are going to be loved. They need to know that they have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and people of faith who will surround them in difficult times. They need people that will walk up and say, I need to know your name because God's put it on my heart to pray for you. Can we just pray over them? Lord, I pray for this group. Lord, I pray for these loved members of our family who are navigating a world that is so difficult. Lord, the pressures they're under, the, the challenges, the temptations. Lord, I pray that you would break through, Lord, and that you would let them know how loved they are. Lord, that they would see your beauty. They would see... Lord, a way that's shining. They would see the way of, of escape in the time of temptations. Lord, that they would contend for their faith. Lord, they would contend not only for themselves and for their futures, but for their friends. Lord, for others that need to know you and need the light that they possess, Lord, to shine on their paths. Lord, I pray that they would stand strong and become strong in the faith. Lord, I pray that they would grow deep roots that are, that are roots that are, that are deep into your love. How wide, how high, how deep is the love of God that you have. Lord, I pray that they would experience it, not just know about it, but they would experience it as they know you. Lord, I pray that they would be able to discern what is best so that they can be pure and blameless in the time of your appearing. Lord, I pray that you would wrap a strong community. Lord, I pray that, that they would not only lead others to Christ, but Lord, I pray that you would bring other strong support systems around them as they are just trying to hold on. Lord, I pray that you would wrap them with support. Lord, wrap them with support. Praise you, Jesus. Now let's all stand. Lord, may we be a community of faith that is built upon the foundation of your love, that loves not just in word, but in action and deeds, in truth and in grace, not separating our physical life from our spiritual life, but Lord, experiencing a unity and a consistency as we model and as we lead the way by example, Lord, for the spiritual fathers and mothers in this congregation, Lord, for the parents, the grandparents that are navigating seasons along with their kids, Lord, we pray for your support and encouragement. Lord, I pray that they will not give up the fight, Lord, that they will position themselves on the front lines where the enemy wants to do his work in, in their children's lives. And Lord, I pray they would stand at the front lines and take your word, take the sword of the Spirit, and fight. I pray that they would hold up that shield of faith in front of their kids. And Lord, that they would take the arrows that the enemy would, would start flinging at their kids and say, not today, not today, not now. Lord, I pray that there would be this war cry that arises and the strength and stability that comes Lord, and those that are mature in faith to contend for the faith in the lives of those they love. And Lord, I pray for that in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we respond to the word of God in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, it's a firm foundation. The love of Christ can change everything in your life. It can heal every broken place in your heart. Knowing Jesus, knowing the word, reading the word, living the word, obeying the word, learning to walk, it will change your life. Experience the love of God as a firm foundation so that you will never be shaken. You will never be shaken when we establish ourselves and root ourselves in the deep love of Jesus that he has for each of us. Praise God for his work in us. May your eyes be open to the wonder 
of who he is as you learn to live like the child of God you are. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now go and live for Jesus. Walk like the child of God you are. Amen.